I'm just headed out to see the sheep. I'd like to give the sheep an afternoon snack. If you're really into food, you probably do things like learn how to bake bread or grow heirloom vegetables. If you're into wine, you go to wine tastings, tour vineyards. Knitters are no different. Let's say you start knitting and start learning about yarn, how it's made. And once you get into yarn, you want to get closer to the animals that produce it. This is how sheep obsession begins. You're listening to Fiber Nation, a knitting podcast that goes beyond knitting. I'm your host, Alison Korleski. I have a confession to make. I have long had this fantasy of raising sheep, and it looks like something out of Walt Disney. I dream about quitting my job and spending my days in a pasture with my own small flock. That's my fantasy. Does it have any connection with reality? In this episode, I find out by talking with Kate Larson, who currently keeps 60 sheep on her family farm in Indiana. Kate is a knitter, a spinner, and a shepherd. As we'll hear, shepherding is more than raising a bunch of sheep. It's creating a flock with a purpose generations down the road. It's a lot of hard questions, usually with very complicated answers. I also want to jump back to something you've said a couple of times now, where you've said about sheep are smart. (laughs) Really? Truly. (laughs) Yes, Uh, they can be. Kate is the editor of Spin Off, a magazine about hand-spinning yarn. But her relationship with sheep and fiber go way back to growing up on her family's 400-acre farm. She's the sixth generation to live there. Kate raises Border Lester sheep, and it's what she wanted to do as long as she can remember. I went off to university to study uh, sheep. (laughs) What do you want to be when you grow up? A shepherd. So um, pretty quickly, I ended up in... uh, Uh, from animal science into agronomy. Growing up on the farm, Kate was always interested in sustainable agriculture. She teaches spinning around the country, along with classes on fleece and sheep breeds. And she brings these dual lives, farmer and teacher, together in a uniquely holistic way, with sheep at the center of things. So I raise border lusters, which are a luster long wool breed. For those of you listening who don't raise sheep or aren't total fiber geeks, Lesters are a type of sheep that have very long, very lustrous wool. There's several breeds of Lester sheep, including the Blueface Lester, which is sort of a celebrity breed at the moment. Kate's border Lesters are a little different. I asked how. So there's, there's three different Lester breeds in the United States, and um, they all come from England. Those sheep uh, were developed to meet new demands uh, for meat and productivity. It turns out that Kate knows a lot about the history of sheep breeds. For this podcast, you need to know that while the blue-faced Lester has the nicest fleece, the border Lester is the tougher, hardier animal. My family has had a Lester Longwool sheep on the farm almost continuously since my great-great-grandfather, and we raised Lincolns. And, uh, there was a, a little period of time where we didn't have any sheep, and then I wanted to get uh, border lesters, and they were the smartest sheep I had ever met. Kate's not joking. We'll get to that in a little bit. I was interested in doing grass-fed agriculture, and so I ended up looking at the border lester because there's so many more of them in this country. And I really wanted to be able to create the sheep, create the flock that worked best for my property and my management and things like that. And so the border Lester, uh, there's some of them that are more like Lester Longwool. Some are fine and more like the blue face Lester. And so 
I had lots of options, mm-hmm. and they're very hardy, and uh, they they're just really good at doing the types of things that I needed them to do. Summers are hot and humid in Indiana, and winters are cold, so Kate needed a hardy breed. Heavy dew can damage finer fleeces, but that was less of an issue with border lesters. And the muddy winters meant she needed a breed with good, strong hooves, one that wouldn't develop foot rot or foot scald. Before this podcast, I'd never really thought about all the things that could go wrong with sheep. Turns out there are a lot. If you want to raise sheep, even a few, you really need to think about where you live first. If the landscape can affect the sheep, you bet sheep can affect the landscape. We humans have binge eaters, picky eaters, and the like, and sheep are no different. Not all sheep graze the same. Mm. And so one thing that I wanted to do was intensive rotational grazing. And that's where sheep have a small area in within a pasture, a small paddock, and that moves every day. So they every day, every wow. day. One of the things I'd always heard about sheep in the West is that they can actually be very damaging to the landscape, that they will sort of eat grass down to the to the root and below. Is that, that, is that is, the case? Yeah, it's about impact. And so where I live in Indiana, we tend to have periods of the year where there's a lot of rainfall and you get a lot of grass growth. And then other times when it's drier and there's less grass growth. And so Intensive rotational grazing allows the sheep to have um, animal impact. So some of that is healthy for a pasture. But um, what happens is if you let the sheep just go wherever they want, they'll keep returning to graze their favorite plants. So their plants, the, the plants that they don't prefer flourish. And the plants that they prefer, they eat to the ground over and over. So you move the sheep often and let the pasture recover. And sheep poop is good for the soil. Yeah. And so good management is very important for sheep if you're working within a landscape that uh, you want to maintain or improve. So sheep can be used to improve their landscape. Uh, sheep can be used and have been used to uh, slow or reverse the um, desertification process in certain mm-hmm. arid parts of the world. But they have to be managed. Sheep are more than fleece-producing, soil-fertilizing robots, though. They can have distinct personalities and inner lives. And part of being a shepherd is getting into a sheep's head. I also want to jump back to something you've said a couple of times now, where you've said about sheep are smart. (laughs) Really? Truly. Yes, Uh, they can be. (laughs) Because when when one thinks of sheep, I mean, even that we use the term sheep to signify something that is unthinking and follows blindly and is kind of stupid. Right. So so what do you see in, in what makes your sheep smart? Yes. So they're uh, like all, you know, <laughs> ideas like that. There is some truth in that a sheep has a certain way of moving through the world uh, that is the way that they do that. <laughs> so if you try to convince them to do something different, that might not work. However, I have found that sheep that are allowed to go out into the environment and problem solve, sheep that are allowed to live in uh, multi-generational groups so that there are are elders with lambs, they can learn a lot. And that information accumulates in my experience. So sheep learn about their environment and that's past, you know, the, the flock is maintained. Now, it wasn't that I disbelieved Kate about sheep learning and passing it on. But I didn't really believe her either, so I did some research. And it turns out she's right. 
According to one study, a sheep can remember 50 faces for up to two years. That's longer than most humans can. They can also solve problems like finding hidden food. But my favorite example, and I am not making this up, have you seen cattle guards? Cars can drive over them, but cattle and usually sheep don't because their hooves slip through. Sheep though, according to eyewitness accounts, sheep manage to get across them by rolling on their backs. Now, if anyone listening to this has video footage, please let us know because we would kill for it. But getting back to our story, I asked Kate what learning means for her sheep. Learning if they touch a wire, they get a shock, that seems pretty obvious. But she also talked about how they travel. Kate's sheep move from one paddock to another every day, so they're used to looking for paths and finding them. If something blocks them, they know how to find a new route without freaking out or getting stuck or hurting themselves. When I first worked with the border lasters in Vermont, that farm, like many farms in Vermont, it was small little pastures all spread out and around. And they knew every square inch of that farm. It was amazing to me that, you know, if we we were done in one pasture and we needed to go down a dirt road and up a hill and Ford a creek, they knew exactly where to go. Lambs that had never been on that journey knew where to go. And remember, just like dogs, sheep vary from one breed to another. And border lesters are super curious. They want to find out everything they can about a landscape for a very simple reason. Find the best food. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes um, it's because they've done it once or they just, they learn the way of moving around the landscape. Um, some, Some shepherds believe that, you know, you can, that, 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 um, group memory, you know, is <laughs> endures, uh, they, they function more like bees than they do like our family pets. So they have a hive mind and they move as one group. Well, I know they don't like to be alone. Like if you have a sheep right. by itself as a sheep that is not happy. Yeah, they usually don't. And again, you know, there's lots of nuances here. You use the term elder, <laughs> yes. which again, when I think of elders, I, I think in a very, you know, anthropomorphic, you know, Mm-hmm. giving their wisdom down to, to younger generations. And you're saying that your sheep do that. Right. And usually in in more mainstream agricultural situations, <laughs> you would call that a lead you. Mm, uh, I've heard of this. Yeah. What I've found to be true is that it really is about the individual sheep and their personality. And so it's usually, the in my flock, the oldest you is the, the savviest you. And so if the there's a problem to solve. She is the one who comes forward and deals with it. Uh, but but with the border lesters, I do also find that if there's a threat, it's a different you that becomes the leader. It's the biggest bouncer sheep uh, comes out front and and deals with the problem. So the the lead you might be something like, how do we get around this fence, or where is water, or exactly there's something between us and the food, so yes. we want to get there. Yes. And the, it sounds like you're talking about a matriarchal culture. I mean, there, there is <laughs> a fair amount of anthropomorphization that we're doing here. We uh, are. But if you sat in the barn with me, <laughs> you would see this happen. Um, and it doesn't work that same way in all flocks. It definitely doesn't. If lead you stand out, some stand out particularly. And this was true of a you named Joan. Uh, I had one of my favorite ewes that I love desperately. Most farmers have uh, one or two through their lives that were, you know, incredibly important. And uh, I had a ewe named Joan. And 
I think Joan is a silly sheep name, but that's who she was. <laughs> and she, by the time she was a week old, she was telling everybody in the flock what to do. And that was just who she was. And she was on the front of Spinoff magazine a couple of years ago, <laughs> looking off into the distance. So you had she, a centerfold sheep. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Pinup girl. And she, uh, she would over, she would watch over the births and lead everyone everywhere they went. Again, I stopped Kate. Really? Joan was a midwife sheep? Like many of you, I've spent way too much time watching YouTube videos of bouncing lambs and placid ewes. That's where much of my bucolic fantasy of sheep raising comes from. But as I learned from Kate, shepherds deal with life and death both and make tough decisions about their flock. During the winter, uh, they eat, eat their snacks all through the day, but they tend to do most of their drinking um, during daylight hours. So I always have to top up their water in the middle of the afternoon. First, let's talk about life. And I want to get back to our midwife sheep, Joan. Every spring when lambing time came, Kate's lead ewe Joan would pace back and forth among the pregnant ewes. She never took her eye off them. And if Kate wasn't there, Joan would call her repeatedly. And if one of the ewes started having trouble, Joan had a special call, one you could hear halfway across the farm. We taped this interview in February, near the beginning of lambing season for many. Kate prefers to wait until March or April when there's green grass for her flock to eat. And it's not too late for my flock, and they Mm -hmm. tend to um, all start lambing at the same time, and it's like this lamb tsunami that all comes (laughs) at once, and, and then it's pretty much done. So within about seven to ten days, my sheep are done. Growing up, I read that James Harriet novel, All Creatures Great and Small, over and over. And between that and watching way too many seasons of Call the Midwife, my mind fills with all of these images of Kate in the barn at lambing season, kind of soaping up her arms and looking grim. The reality is far less dramatic. Labor lasts maybe 30 minutes, the lamb is up and bouncing around in another 30. Kate's role is often more doula than midwife. I like to be there. Okay. And not everybody does, and it really depends on your flock. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to, uh, like when I was growing up in the 80s, everybody wanted the biggest sheep possible. So when you're trying to produce larger lambs, you're more likely to have ewes that need help with those those babies. Because they're big. Because they're big. If something goes wrong, it goes wrong really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I like to be um, as uninvolved as possible. But I like to be there in case, you know, something is happening. Come on over here. Although border lusters are a dual-use breed, meaning they produce meat and fleece, cage sheep are kept primarily for their wool. And let's face it, this is interweave, so we should probably talk about that wool for a bit. There we go. Here we go, Tess. As a, a small flock, uh, it's many people will learn to shear. And I learned how to shear. And I also learned that it is well worth the money to pay someone who does this a lot <laughs> to take care <laughs> of this. Uh, so I prefer to have a, a shearer come in. And if you have a good shearer, you treasure them. Kate's sheep can grow a lot of wool very quickly. I was pretty shocked when she told me how much. So until they're about three years old, my lambs uh, and and young ewes will grow about a, an inch of wool a month. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a huge amount. Yeah. And when they're pregnant, it slows down. When they become older, it really slows down. So it 
it depends on what they're doing Mm -hmm. more than the other types of sheep I've worked with in my life. I shear them at about three months, and then I get pretty little baby locks that are, you know, just a couple of inches long. And then they spend the rest of that first year raising what is, I would say, their second best fleece Mm -hmm. of their life. The one that comes after that is usually the best fleece that I ever get off of them. And um, after that, they're often, you know, having lambs and things. And so it won't be as nice, but Mm -hmm. I find it does slowly go downhill as they get older. At this point in time, Kate uses her fleeces for herself or in her classes or sells them to students. Her sheep support her teaching career, which in turn helps support her farm. Again, it's a really holistic approach to life. Okay, now let's talk about the hard stuff. My sheep raising fantasies never extended this far or got as complicated as what comes next. When you're a shepherd, you manage your flock every day. What they eat and where, who gets to have babies and when, who stays and who doesn't. And let's be clear, Kate's sheep are not pets. They have a purpose. And a flock can only grow so big before she has to make some choices. At the moment, I have a lot of rams. Uh, I tend to focus more on maternal lines. Mm -hmm. And uh, I introduced a new ram several years ago. And so now I have a group of his sons. And I'm deciding which of those stay. So often, um, that's when you also find out if there's anything genetically wrong with the combination of a new ram and your your flock. Mm -hmm. So you want to watch those descendants very closely for a while. So right now, I think I have eight rams. uh, That's a lot of rams. It's a lot of rams. But they, you know, through the year, they hang out in the bachelor pad and, you know, and then, it's all and then do you kind of pick one, like you're the lucky guy that he goes yeah. out into your field of or, views? Or? Yeah, or two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I've just taken my my rams out. I had four breeding groups this year. That's a lot for me. Uh, but I needed to see whose lambs I wanted mm-hmm. and who, who got to stay. And uh, sometimes you know, I've got a ram named Silvio. He has a fantastic <laughs> silver fleece. And he just, he's very suave. And uh, I love him. So uh, <laughs> so even if I don't keep him as a ram, mm-hmm. an active ram, I get to keep him in my flock to produce fiber. And that's a luxury that I have that many shepherds don't. And I do... Um, carefully watch my breeding lines Mm -hmm. and I know exactly who was related to who and that allows me to make uh, animal husbandry decisions. And this is what shepherding a flock means, not only guiding sheep from one pasture to another, but guiding the bloodlines for a stronger flock that's years or even generations down the road. And a good shepherd guards her flock, not just from predators, but from other dangers, especially genetic ones. You know, somebody was, had a beautiful fleece but they weren't a great mother. or And then mm-hmm. she usually gets to stay and just raise fleece. Uh, I might have um, a you that's a wonderful mother, but she has more susceptibility to parasites. So then those are hard decisions to make. That's where I think it's really interesting to talk about shepherding because it's not just, even if wool is the focus of my flock, it's about all these other things that have to be selected for. And you don't get to have the luxury, unfortunately, of choosing just one thing to select for. Mm -hmm. You get all of that whole package. Kate's ideal fleece combines the best traits of all of her sheep. Some have very silky wool, some have a nice curl, others have fleece that's very white. Getting all of those traits in one animal that's also healthy and good-tempered, that takes many generations. 
and not every lamb is a success. And that means culling the flock. Culling essentially means removing an animal from the flock, and that can happen in several different ways. You can sell sheep. In Kate's case, she often sells to a local 4-H program. It can also mean removing a ewe from the breeding flock, but letting it stay on as a fleece grower. Often, though, it means taking an animal for slaughter. Right. I, for myself, believe that a certain amount of culling, uh, which is what we call it in in livestock terms, keep or cull is what you have to decide with an individual, uh, that, that a certain amount of culling helps me keep my flock healthy and moving in the direction I want. So um, I can keep developing fleeces that I want to keep and uh, animals that do better in my environment. So so there are a certain number of animals that I take in for slaughter each year. And uh, the way that I raise my sheep, where I spend a lot of time with them and know them personally, I, I take uh, a lot of responsibility for their welfare from the moment they come into life until they leave it. And so I have a lot of rules associated <laughs> with how this happens, but I definitely do slaughter. And mm-hmm. um, my family uh, does does consume the fruit of that flock. So some people are the opposite. They could never eat, eat uh, meat from their own farm. Uh, but I personally feel like it's, it's something that um, it's a gift that they mm-hmm. have given me. And I take that very seriously. So when it's time for them to leave, they never go alone. Even the big mean oh. rams, they always go with a buddy because they, they're more frightened when they're alone. Mm-hmm. And I take them to their final destination. I, I don't sell at auction or anything like mm-hmm. that. And obviously not everyone can do that with their flock. Not every bale of hay is created equally. And some are more delicious than others. This one has passed the test. This is perhaps the toughest part of our conversation, and not because of sentimentality, but because the decisions behind culling are so nuanced and so complicated. And Kate is very, very clear that she's pretty privileged to be so close to her sheep and have the time to consider every individual animal and its place in our flock. As for me, I'm not sure I could do this. I understand the need to cull a flock to keep it healthy. But I'm also the kind of person who apologizes to plants when she weeds. It's safe to say that I don't have the right attitude to successfully manage a flock. I'd end up like the neighborhood cat lady, but with sheep. Some Mm -hmm. people, they just, it doesn't work for their situation. So Mm -hmm. there's many, many ways in which uh, shepherds make this work for them. And so I've been able to, through my textile work, make my flock pay in a different way. So I'm able to have those um, personal rules about uh, how they come in and exit life because I've been able to uh, make the the flock pay uh, through not only their fiber, but through uh, my teaching of hand spinning and knitting classes. And uh, all of that is one big picture. So that's really what sustainable agriculture is all about. It's about making all of these pieces fit together. Holistic management is another um, term, and it's it's a little different than very specific. But um, finding all of these pieces and making a whole. There's a lot of interconnectedness in this episode. 
Sheep, like any foraging animal, affect their landscape. And over generations, that landscape and climate in turn shape the sheep, both the flock and their fleece. This is why different sheep in different parts of the world make very different kinds of wool. For those of us who knit or spin or weave, we know these different wools make different kinds of yarn. And we turn those yarns into different things. And those things that we make can also reflect the climate and the fiber culture they initially came from. Think of a Fair Isle cardigan, knit in Shetland wool, or a lopy sweater from Iceland, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. This interconnectedness is key to Kate's approach to life and art. She's breeding sheep that will thrive in her particular Midwestern climate, and she's creating an all-purpose fleece that is great to spin and nice to wear. This way of, of trying to merge my interests in agriculture and um, sustainable agriculture with my interests in art and culture and travel and tradition uh, was difficult for me for a lot of years until I realized they are parallel. <laughs> and uh, textiles is what brings all of that together. So my love of sheep and the way that I raise my sheep on a very traditional farm in Indiana is uh, an interesting parallel with the same work that people are doing in other parts of the world. If all this sounds complicated, it's because it is complicated. And it's a far cry from what I expected when I first sat down with Kate. Looking back at my fantasy farm, I realize how naive I am. Even on such a small scale, I doubt I could manage the hard work and constant decisions that any shepherd needs to make. So rather than buying that farm, I'm pretty sure I'll stick with buying yarn. Listening to Kate, though, even though her farm is small and not a commercial enterprise, I have a much better appreciation of the work and the years behind whatever yarn I do buy. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about Kate as well as pictures of her farm and sheep on our show notes page. Just look for a link in our episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Fiber Nation is a production of FNW Media Studios. It's produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our consulting producer is Ron Doyle. Our audio engineer and editor is Evan Rutherford. And our executive producer of podcast is Jared Mayer. 